0: Welcome to Unlikely Intersections, the podcast where intent, impact, and inquiry inspire our conversations. I'm Dr. Philip Brown with my good friend Terry Jackson, and you're at the intersection with us. The interesting thing about intersections, of course, is that we all face many intersections daily. The way we navigate these determines the course of our day and our life. Terry, I'm really excited today. We've got a wonderful guest. Uh, I'd love for you to uh, Tell us a little bit about our guest, and then we'll turn it over.
1: Well, we have with us today none other than Mr. Gary Ridge, who is a recently retired CEO of WD-40. And if you know anything about Gary, if you've had the opportunity to read his book or to do any research on him, you understand that when it comes to employee engagement, his organization, WD-40, had some of the highest employee engagement scores for many, many years, To that they exceeded actually the 90 percentile. That's how engaged. That's the type of culture that he was able to develop, or as he called it, the tribe. And with that, we're going to enjoy this conversation today. And, of course, our topic is going to be around culture. So, Gary, it's a pleasure to have you.
2: G'day. Good morning. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much for the invitation. Let me give you my my preferred introduction, if I may. Okay. G'day. I'm Gary Ridge. I'm the recently retired, now refired, consciously <laughs> incompetent, probably <laughs> wrong, and roughly right chairman emeritus of WD-40 Company and the culture coach.
1: Awesome. Awesome. I love awesome. It. Love it. <laughs> love it, Gary. So
2: give us a little bit of
1: background around you know, your your travels, your journey to, to becoming, I guess, CEO of, and, and when you begin to realize the importance of culture within an organization?
2: Yeah, great question. Thank you. So uh, I was uh, with WD-40 Company for 35 years, mm. uh, 25 years as the CEO of a public company. So um, it's been a wonderful journey. I started with them in 1987 in sydney australia where i opened our australian subsidiary i transferred to the united states in 1994 uh, to head up our international expansion program uh, we wanted to take the blue and yellow can with a little red top to the world because we <laughs> knew there was lots of squeaks and rust out there that we could help people with and then in 1997 the then ceo retired and uh, I was given the privilege and the opportunity to lead the company. And and that was kind of the turning point. Uh, I remember very clearly October 7th, 1997. Um, and uh, I thought, wow, you know, I, I, I was scared but not afraid. In fact, mm. as a U.S. public company, I'd actually never been to Wall Street. So mm. that was probably a good thing. I hadn't been... Um, tainted yet by the, uh, <laughs> um, the the short-sightedness but it actually all start my my, my aha moment was actually on an airplane mm. I was flying from Los Angeles to Sydney and I was in the early stages of my CEO role and I was actually reading some of the work of the Dalai Lama mm. and in this piece I read he said our purpose in life is to make people happy. If you can't make them happy, at least don't hurt them. And I went, well, that makes sense. And funnily enough, at just about the same you know, moments later, I was reading something and I read this quote from Aristotle. Pleasure in the job puts perfection in the work. Mm. And I thought, my goodness, what is this message I'm getting? If we can create an environment where people know they matter and they know they belong. Would they do? Would they be happier at work? Would they go home happy? And would they do? Um, would they create better results? And I thought, wow, that's pretty interesting. I then started to think about how do I learn more about this. So I looked around and I ended up uh, enrolling in a master's degree at the University of San Diego, and that's where I met my dear friend, my mentor, and. Eventually, my co-author, Dr. Ken Blanchard, the probably the guru of servant leadership and the one-minute manager. And in that two-year master's program, I learned the tools of servant leadership, mm-hmm. and I started to apply them at WD-40 Company. And the rest is sort of history. We, we've built a wonderful culture, and it's not about me. Um, you know, the three most important words I ever learned in my life were, I don't know, and... And getting happy with that was fine, but we, we, as you mentioned, Terry, we built a wonderful culture. And when I, I didn't, re, I haven't retired actually. I refired. I've <laughs> <opened it.
1: laughs>
2: but you know, WD40 company today uh, is in 176 countries around the world. We have a last employee engagement uh, survey, which was in March. Last year, we had employee engagement at 93%. Mm. 98% of the people say they love to tell people they work at the company. 96 or 7% say they actually respect their coach, who is their boss. We don't have managers. Words matter. We, they, they're called their coach. And it's all because um, we have a, a group of people that come together every day to protect and feed each other. Now, interestingly enough, Aristotle was right because at the same time, over a 25-year period we sixed X the revenue mm. and the market cap grew from about 200 and or 300 million to just near $3 billion. So not only did we have an organization that was sending people home happy, but uh, we had an organization that delivered substantial financial rewards. And, you know, finally, I just sum it up like this. Imagine a place where you go to work every day, you make a contribution to a purpose that's meaningful and bigger than yourself. You learn something new, you're protected and set free by a compelling set of values and you go home happy. And why is that important? Happy people create happy families. Happy families create happy communities. Happy communities create a happy world. And by golly, we need a happy world. And business has the biggest opportunity ever to do that. So that's a little bit of the story.
0: Wow. that's, That's so, so compelling, you know, and. And it's amazing. You didn't even really talk about the, the product itself, right? And for somebody like myself who, you know, I do a lot of outside work as a, as a hobby, right? I have a couple of tractor, do tractor work, do all kinds of fixing things. And I wouldn't dream of going anywhere without a couple of cans of WD-40 tucked away <laughs> because if you got that and a roll of duct tape, you can buy time to do just about anything in that realm and absolutely you know and it's just so I mean that's so powerful now I heard recently um I saw a little clip by Simon Sinek who was calling you out in particular as a street whisperer uh and and I can't I, I won't get his his characterization of that exactly right but it was something around the fact of some criticism that was going toward quarterly earnings and and you had a pretty powerful response and I was wondering if you'd share that a little bit with our audience.
2: Yeah, sure. Simon is a good friend of mine. We met each other about 15 years ago and I've learned a lot from Simon. So, thank you to Simon. Yeah. I think what he was referring to was, you know, this Wall Street, you know, need to create quarterly earnings and and I think he was said if this is the same instance, he said uh, he would have said that, you know, one time I was on a, an earnings call with some analysts and, um, and the analyst said, you missed your number this quarter. I said, it wasn't my number, it was yours. My numbers are fine. Thank you. And it really, it gets back to this, you know, short-term yes. thinking. You know, we, we yes. Simon's whole you know platform is playing the infinite game, yes, not the right. finite game. Now, you have to play have to have finite events within the infinite game yes. don't get me wrong there you have to have your know, clear strategy there's there's two things you need in business you need a very good strategy and a high will of the people mm-hmm. and and a lot of companies spend a lot of time on developing their strategy but not enough time on developing the will of the people or you know a high engagement. You, you can write the best strategy, strategic plan in the world. We write a nice strategic plan. We take it to some smart professor of Harvard or wherever, he marks it up and says, congratulations, well done. You've got a great strategic plan, 70 out of hundred for your strategic plan. But if only 20% of your people go to work every day and are engaged and you know working towards a purpose and learning and having values, 20 times 70 is 1400. There's your output. But if 80% of your people, remember what you know, Aristotle said, if 80% of your people go to work every day and are engaged and working towards a purpose that's meaningful and you're learning and being protected and set free by values, eight, 80 times 70, or well, seven eights of 56, 5,600. Duh. The math is simple.
1: Very simple.
0: Yeah, that so, is so powerful. I'd love to hear it. So, talk a little bit more about that will of the people, right? Because for me, as a a person who's been through, you know, the recent thing that we've been through in healthcare, of course, is the pandemic and what we've seen um, is a group of team members who are just just in a really bad place, right? Like, you know, they're questioning everything that they do. The engagement is at an all-time low. People have left the profession. That kind of tells me that, that that the the cultural aspects of what we're doing across the whole industry may be significantly compromised
2: well again thank you it gets back to two things do i matter and do i belong Hmm. and you know one of the biggest desires we have as human beings is to belong that's why i developed the tribal leadership concept you know we we think about you know tribes go back to the beginning of time whether it was ug the caveman who was out hunting with his mates for the, you know, for whatever they, they were going to eat. So belonging is so important. And, you know, belonging is about, you know, do I matter? And am I being, you know, treated with care and candor? And, and am I being held accountable? And, and am I being responsible? And uh, you, Terry, you remember this guy, right?
1: Yes, I remember that guy. <laughs> I was I was just thinking about that guy. I was going to ask you about him.
2: I'm sorry you were thinking about him. Is very <laughs> <laughs> It's not something i'd like you to be thinking about first thing monday morning but you know this is al al is the soul sucking ceo of fear inc mm. and as you would think fear inc has a very very low employee engagement in fact it may even be negative negative. and here are some of the behaviors that al has that creates these toxic cultures al's ego it's his empathy instead of his empathy eating his ego. Mm. He's, he, it's all about him. He thinks micromanagement is essential. He thinks he's corporate royal. Sh- it could be Alice, too. Be
1: <laughs> okay.
2: It, 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 they, they think they're corporate royalty. They have worked their life to absolutely climb up this high ladder of, of, of respect in the company. They shall bow down to Al. They love a fear-based culture. They are a know-it-all, a master of control. They have all the answers, particularly the wrong ones. They think learning is for losers. They must always be right. They Mm. hate feedback and they don't follow through on their commitments. Now, I'm sure people listening, watching us today may have met Al or Alice, (laughs) Um, but it's Al or Alice's behavior that's creating these cultures where people don't feel like they belong. So if you want a culture, where you know people feel like they belong. What what really is important to to have in that culture? Well, you have to have a people first mindset. Mm-hmm. It's all about the people. Remember what uh, the, the Dalai Lama said: in that our purpose in life is to make people happy. Um, words matter. Let's take the word manager out of our um, our vocabulary and let's be coaches. Mm-hmm. Let's think of what a great coach does. A great coach never runs on the field. A great coach never goes to the podium to pick up the prize. A great coach doesn't try and score the goal. A great coach spends time on the sideline, observing the play with one objective. It's to help the player win or get an A. And, you know, that was the basis of the book that I wrote with with Ken Blanchard, helping people win at work. Don't mark my paper, help me get an A. So a coach's job is to help someone get an A. The other role of a coach is to spend a lot of time in the locker room. Why? Because he's got the coach's job is to build trust, build <laughs> trust within the locker room. They have to have clearly defined authentic purposes within an organization, a hierarchical set of values that will protect people and set them free, transparency and a simple vision. And here's the big one. Let's take fear out of an organization by reducing removing the word failure and replacing it with learning moments. This is huge. A learning moment is a positive or negative outcome of any situation that needs to be openly and freely shared to benefit all people. How many people do you hear running down corridors of organizations proudly yelling out, I'm a failure? None. Because they've hidden that failure because they're afraid of the of Al, the soul-sucking CEO. Oh, who's that's the, right. of of attacking them. So have learning moments. There needs to be belonging and acceptance and security, support, inclusion, and then the four pillars of care, candor, accountability, and responsibility. These are the things that we need to work on as leaders to create cultures where people know they matter and know they belong.
1: You know, uh, Gary, I couldn't agree with you more in all that you said. And it's, it's an easy read and it's easy to listen to, What's most important is for those organizations that are not there, and the majority of them are not there, we know that. How do they get there?
2: Well, the first thing is a realization that it's all about the people. Mm. And, you know, put your ego aside. It's not about you, the leader. It's about, if you, in anything, in anything you do, if you need the support of people to be your best, what do you need to do? Mm -hmm. Support the people and have them in a position where they want to support you. So your role as a coach, as I said, it's not about you. You're there to help people win. And if you help people win, they'll help you win. That's why I'm so pleased I was born so stupid. You know. I... <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's a good one, that's a good one. And you know what, there's probably more CEOs who probably wish that they were born stupid because they have made it all about them versus the organization. You know, uh, just a little bit of how we met. We met, I guess, several years ago in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, through our mutual friend and and mentor, Marshall Goldsmith. And I've learned a great deal from him, and and now, of course, Philip has had the opportunity to meet him, but tell us a little bit about Marshall's, I guess, impact on you, and, and and how you guys actually uh, met?
2: Sure. So um, for six after uh, graduating from the master's degree at USD, a few years later, I uh, I went back to USD and became a professor mm. to teach in that program. Mm. And for sixteen years, I've taught a, a class in the Master of Science in Executive Leadership around building corporate culture. And way back then, I before I knew Marshall well at all, I got his book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, mm-hmm. which is one of the best reflections of Al ever. And I used that as the text in the class. Mm-hmm. And I knew Marshall lived in San Diego. So on a whim one day I called him up and he answered his phone. I said, Hey Marshall, I'm Gary Ridge. I'm at that time I was CEO of WD 40 company, but I'm also a professor, adjunct professor at, at USD. Uh, I'm teaching this class. I use your book uh, as one of the texts in the class. Would you consider coming to my class and talking to my students? Mm. And uh, Marshall uh, probably says now. Unfortunately, said yes. So I never let him go. After <laughs> <that>. <laughs> so for uh, year after year, Marshall would graciously come on a Sunday morning. As you know, as Marshall is, he's just a giver, uh, and he would um, uh, teach, help teach. His principles in in my class um so we just you know over time became friends and uh when he was putting together his, you know he had a dream where he he said i he said he was going to retire and as we know he didn't he's busier than ever Mm -hmm. right now he said i want to get at that stage 15 people and teach them everything i know for free as long as they uh, commit to doing it uh, as they get older feeding it forward paying it forward so I was at a meeting up at Rancho Santa Fe one day and and Marshall saw the sign that we were there and he comes, you know, bursting into the room and as Marshall does, hey Gary, hey Marshall, how are you, blah. blah. Hey, you better better sign up for my fifteen coaches. I said, What are you what are you talking about? And he told me the story and I said, Thanks, Marshall, but you know I've had the privilege of learning so much from you. I don't want to take a seat from someone else. I can get mm. everything for free from you any time I want. <laughs> Marshall went off. <laughs> so about two weeks later, I got a call from uh, my, one of my co-professors, and they said, congratulations, do you see you're in the first 25? I said, what are you talking about? He said, you've just been named as one of the 25 in Marshall's group of, uh, that he's putting together. Mm. And I said, really? So I called Marshall up and I said what's the deal? He said I told you you're going to be in
1: this. <laughs> <laughs> which That's has been Marshall. fabulous
2: yes. which has been fabulous and you know I in fact in a week or two I'm I'm flying off to Dubai uh, and uh, Marshall and I are coaching uh, together mm. uh, in, in, in Dubai. He's coaching the CEO of a company and I'm coaching the COO and um, and I've met many many great people through the group uh, that you and I are in Terry people like Chester Elton who wrote mm-hmm, the book mm-hmm. um the carrot principle in later times anxiety at work and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, leading with gratitude uh, you know Ron Carusi who mm-hmm. who just wrote a great book fan, one of my favorites mm-hmm. to be honest um is the name of the book and mm-hmm. one of the best i've seen it. and a bunch of other people that we we and we you know we form a circle and we just help each other out as we're doing today that's all we do we're here to pay it forward and Try and make the world a little better place by helping people build organizations where people actually love to go to yes, work
1: absolutely absolutely you know what's interesting to me is the fact that you as a ceo of wd-40 decided to actually teach an mba course i can't recall not to say that it's it doesn't happen hearing a ceo talk about teaching a course What was the impetus behind you teaching the course and what gifts did you receive from your students as you taught the course? What learnings were there for you?
2: Well, they say one of the greatest ways to learn is to teach. And certainly, you know, over the 16 or so years that I I've taught at USD and the many, many um, leaders that have gone through that program, you learn something every day Um, and you get to you know, to test your theories and have people put it to work. But some of the greatest gifts I've got from that program is actually seeing people go and do it. And why did I do it? Because of the gift that Ken gave me, Ken Mm -hmm. Blanchard. Mm -hmm. Um, His gift was to teach in that program. And I I took what I learned from him and many of the other professors there at the time, and I decided to do something with it. And in doing something with it, we created a place at WD 40 company where we were making a positive difference on people's lives. And you know, life is a gift. We don't want to send it back unwrapped. And mm. a lot of people are not unwrapping life. And mm. and you know, as I said, I think business has the biggest opportunity and responsibility ever today to make a positive difference on people's lives because we t- touch more people every day than most any other you know, system does. And we need to do something about making the world a better place. This is not a good place right now. Mm. And, you know, we need to do something about that. You know, people are getting laid off and, you know, we're going through this, these terrible times. And, um, and we've just been through this big life lesson of of COVID Mm -hmm. and look at the way that changed the environment. So we, we've got to do all we can to help people and, create these places because again you know it's it's life is a gift and and we we better treasure it
1: yeah,
0: yeah you said something there that reminds me of another of, of ken blanchard's sort of philosophies that comes out in a different book and I, I would consider ken a paper mentor of mine for a long time i love his books are easy to read they are pragmatic but uh gung-ho you know that he co authored you know and, and it talks about that the purpose of, of the company, in that case, the, the example he uses, you know, really is about what it does for the sense of purpose of the people who are on the team that work there. You know? And then collectively, they deliver either a product or they deliver something, but there's this deep sense of meaning for those humans for the humans that are their families and friends and neighbors, and for the communities that 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 company exists in, that really uh, is is the more important purpose of the company than any other.
2: Um, Absolutely. And yeah, but, we have a we have a we have a job to do, and we should be doing it.
0: Yeah, we see that, and you know, I think it seems like, and again, another paper mentor, or or these in this era is more video mentor, Simon Sinek. Although I've read read all of his books, um, you know, I think there's a there's something in in there that's very parallel to Ken's perspective there as well, in terms of it just has a different way of saying it. But Absolutely. So, and talk a little bit about what that would feel like as a team member, right? you know, because you've obviously spent a lot of time in cultivating it?
2: Yeah. So I think how it should feel is around the four pillars of care, candor, accountability, and responsibility. So if you're a a, a team member, a tribe member, your leader cares about you. And care is not only rewarding and applauding you for doing great work, but being brave enough to redirect you when you're not moving towards the A. And, 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 you know, it's unfortunate that a lot of people protect their own comfort zone at the mm-hmm. expense of someone else's development. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, so they're not brave enough to do that. But great leaders both applaud, reward and redirect. So care is number one. The second one is candor. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of pinched or I borrowed this from Simon. No lying, no faking, no hiding. Mm-hmm. I believe most people in organizations don't lie. I believe they fake and they hide. Why do they fake and hide? Well, because of Al, the soul-sucking CEO, who's you know, putting fear into the organization, they don't have learning moments, they have mistakes. So you've got to have that area of, of that. And, and, and again, having that coaching mentality around that is very important. Then there's accountability. And that was really the basis of, of what Ken and I wrote about in, in helping people win at work. You know, I was in Ken's in the class with Ken and he was telling a story about when he was a professor and he used to give out the final paper at the beginning of the class. And the academic said, what the hell are you doing, Blanchard, giving out the final paper? He said, not only am I giving out the final paper, what am I going to do for the next three semesters? I'm going to help them learn the answers. And I went, oh, duh. In organisations, <laughs> most people don't succeed because we haven't been clear about what we're going to hold each other accountable for. Mm. And so it's, you know, what do you expect from me? What do I expect from you? Are we going to have the opportunity to have open and honest conversations about that? Are we going to do it regularly with one goal in mind? And that's to help you, the person that I have the privilege to coach and lead, get your aid and if you don't know what the a looks like when it walks in the room there's no way you're going to get it so accountability is very important and then the final one is 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 responsibility mm-hmm. and you know we again as i said words matter and we developed a a thing at at the company many years ago and we actually uh, called it the maniac pledge and 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 what it is it's a pledge of responsibility and and, and if i may I'll read it to you yes mm-hmm. it says I am responsible for taking action, asking questions, getting answers, and making decisions. Mm. I won't wait for someone to tell me. If I need to know, I am responsible for asking. I have no right to be offended that I didn't get this sooner. And if I'm doing something others should know about, I am responsible for telling them. Mm -hmm. So a clear pledge of what we're going to hold each other responsible for. So they're the four pillars: care, candour, accountability, responsibility, and and seeing them in action. You know, it's not about the words. This whole thing is simple. It's not easy,
1: <laughs> and,
2: and time is not your friend.
1: That's right. You Never have to
2: been. do it consistently. Cons- you know, when I was at school many years ago in Australia, my science teacher gave me a petri dish, and he said, "We're going to grow culture in this petri dish." I said, "Okay, fair enough." So what's important? Well, the first thing is what are the ingredients that you need to put in the Petri dish to grow the culture? That's that's very, very important. So growing a culture, you need to put, you know, people first mindset, values, purpose, care, candor, account, all that stuff goes in the Petri dish. Now, what's what do you need to do next? As a leader, you need to watch that Petri dish every day. Mm-hmm. And you have to feed the good ingredients and you have to be brave enough to attack the toxins. Because if the toxins get in there, they will send that Petri dish culture sour in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So culture equals values plus behavior times consistency.
1: You know, it's it's interesting, and and we talk about culture, and, and people and leaders talk about culture in organizations all the time. But the real work that needs to go into creating maintaining, sustaining culture. That's the work that I don't see a lot of. They begin to look at what the expense will be of maintaining that culture versus what the investment is within the organization moving forward for the culture that's needed to continue to thrive. How can we get past, and, and not that expense is a uh, some somewhat of a, Uh, An obstacle. But how can we get past looking at it as an expense for organizations versus an investment?
2: Well, I don't think it is an expense. That's Mm. really something that is not workable. It's a commitment. Mm. That's what it is. You know, it's not expensive to have a clearly defined purpose. It's not expensive to have a clear, clearly defined set of values that protect people and set them free. It's not expensive to have an attitude of care, care, or accountability and responsibility. What it takes is commitment. Mm-hmm. And a lot of organizations think you can go and do some training course, bring in some consultant, some expert, they'll sprinkle some fairy dust over your organization and, <laughs> pew, and now, you have, now you have culture. It doesn't work that way. It, it's the foundations that are important. Do you have, a, you know, again, the foundations are so important. And it's, again, it's, it's, it's really these things. Do you have a dedication to people? Do you have a clearly defined purpose? Are your values in place? Do you have a mindset of learning, learning moments instead of failure? And are those four foundations there: care, candour, accountability, and responsibility? That's it. That's the model. And if you ha- and and then you have to do it every day. And these things don't cost a lot. This is not a, a multi-million-dollar program. It's simple basics. Remember, I said. This is simple, not easy, and time is not your friend. Yeah,
0: it's so powerful. I want to go back. You, you know, you were talking about the the four components and the responsibility, accountability, and what it takes to get there. And one of the you kind of touched on it. One of the definitions I've always thought around accountability is really is what am, what is the team counting on me for, right? So I kind of think that accountability is, is the person, right? Like what what they need to bring to the whole, that, that uh, delivers a, a tremendous amount into their sense of purpose, right? Because they when they feel needed, because they are, then, you know, and there's clarity, then magic happens almost. But with all that said, you talked a little bit about the courage component of coaching and the obligation to say, This is what it looked like. And from the standpoint of, you know, we all have different temperaments, talents, and convictions. And you mentioned not a lot of people were willing to do that part because it took them out of their comfort zone. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about developing that courage as a leader to have those conversations and how you help, how you nurture that in yourself or in, you know, other, you know, middle leaders
2: and so forth. It's love.
1: Mm. It's absolute
2: love. And I'll tell you why. I was one of those persons who was protecting my comfort zone at the, ex- at the expense of other people's development because, you know, I, I didn't want to have those crucial conversations from time mm. to time. Mm. And then something hit me a few years ago, it is that the more I love and care for someone, the more important that conversation is. Because Mm. if I'm truly committed to them, you know, stepping into the best version of their personal self, as long as there's no, you know, sad agenda in my conversation, it's my responsibility to have that conversation. And that's where values come into play in an organization. And I give you a very, very simple example on that. You know, at WD-40 Company... Our our second value, and our values were hierarchical. Our first value was we valued doing the right thing. Our second value was we valued creating positive, lasting memories in all of our relationships. So one time, some time ago, I I was in a meeting, and one of the tribe members in a meeting early in the morning was not creating positive, lasting memories. They were having one of those toxic moments where Mm -hmm. whatever happened to them that morning was not benefiting those who were in the room. So what do you do as a leader? Well, option A is you stop the meeting and you, you know, inject fear by reprimanding him. Eh, that's not going to work mm-hmm. because everybody else in the room, next time there's a meeting, will be saying, am I going to get the arrow today if I misbehave, if that's it? Second thing, you do nothing. Eh, that's not going to work because now you're not doing your responsibility as mm-hmm. the leader. Mm-hmm. So you've got to have that conversation. So the meeting ended. And I said to this person, hey, let's go for a walk. So, so we walked out of the building. And to add some kind of cooling to the situation, I started to look behind a car. And I looked in a trash can. And I looked behind a bush. And the person said, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking for you. Mm. The you I know and love was not in that room today. Mm. What's on your mind? What's getting in your way? How can I help you? And we opened up and had a conversation, which was the person that had a, just a a lot of incidents happened that morning that had soured the morning. So that's when the coach walked into the room and said, you know, well, blah, blah, blah. And we had a coaching session. And at the end of it, we hugged and the person went back inside and I saw them go to a few people that were at the meeting and say, hey, you know, that wasn't me in the meeting today. And they say, we know the person we love, you weren't there. And so- You know, I think you've got to be brave enough to have those conversations, but you've got to have a platform to be able to enter them. And that's why having values that you can act on within an organization is so important, because I was able to say, you know, that one of our values is to create positive, lasting memories. And that wasn't happening today.
1: You know, uh, Gary, you mentioned a word that's extremely important to all of us, but very rare do we hear it in a corporate setting. I've heard you and one other CEO talk about this word a great deal, and that CEO was Alan Mulally, who was the, the, yeah, yeah. the, the, the he was the chief uh, executive officer of Ford Motor Company, um, and he mentioned the word as you did, love. It's rare that you hear that in a corporate setting from a, a CEO, and I remember asking Alan. When did you begin to understand the impact of love in the corporate setting? And I'm going to ask you that same question, because very, I think there's fear <laughs> around interjecting the word love into a corporate setting.
2: Absolutely. And you know, the other person who uses it is Bob Chapman from Barry Weinmiller, and I learned something mm. from what he said. And he said, just remember, everybody who walks into your operation one day is someone's precious child. Hmm. And I, put, I would add to that there's someone's precious child, husband, wife, brother, sister, auntie, or uncle. And, you know, a lot of people take that word love as being soft. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's not. It's, it's, it's deep caring for someone. Uh, and if you have a deep caring, what do you want? Well, you want them to be successful. You want to help them learn. You want to help them grow. You know, a lot of people think that this culture thing is all about popcorn, pizzas, and singing "Kumbaya." <laughs> it's not. This is hard. Yes, this it is, is hard. This is hard, but it's very rewarding. And you know, if anything we can do on our you know, little journey down the path of life is to help people, you know, in some way, uh, then life's been a, a gift to us.
0: I want to take a second and just say, wow, thanks for that. That, that hit me hits me at a really, uh, really interesting and good time for me in my life that, that the love is such an important part of leadership, even in the corporate world. And for me as a, a person who was trained as a surgeon, I mean, love has been a part of everything I've always done for patients, right? Even though, I mean, let's face it, surgery hurts people but it's a lot like that tough conversation, right? Like it's for the greater good, right? It's for the trying to have the the goal of getting back to better health Um, and being able to navigate those things is really important. So, you know, in my leadership, I've always always felt that, but I can't say I've been comfortable saying it, but when somebody, you know, as prestigious as, as, as the two of you guys, fellow MG 100 coaches and, and Bob Chapman, another paper mentor, uh, you know, and Alan Mulally say, you know, are willing to say it openly. That gives me, number one, it, it lays out the challenge to me that, hey, man, it's okay to put that language into your into your work leadership. Uh, you know, and it also says, it, it's, a, it's an aha moment for me in healthcare uh, because I'm just realizing now how, Absent that word just that word is in things that we do even though so many of us actually feel it Uh, You know, it's fascinating I've got a book coming out in just a couple of couple of months and that is one of the concepts in there That is one of the aha moments about that the love that underlies the relationship with the person you're taking care of But the aha moment that's hitting me now is that you know in leadership whether it's corporate America whether it's, you know, a family or whatever, it is that love. And it's something that we ought to actually be talking about front and center as we go forward. So thank you for that.
2: That's powerful. Yeah, it's and it's amazing how much courage you get from love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it was that moment for me where, you know, I was not, I was protecting my comfort zone, but I really realized it's love that's going to give me the courage to have that conversation. Cause I'm going into this conversation with one thing in mind and that's for that person to be able to step into the best person, the best new person they possibly can. Mm. And if I love them enough, I have to be brave enough to have that conversation.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, now that you are the refired individual that you are, refired CEO, what are some of the learnings since you've, you you've been refired that you've gained from working with clients, working with others. Now that you've had the chance to kind of step back as the the uh, CEO of WD Forty.
2: Well, I you know I, I said I've just finished my twenty five year apprenticeship in leadership, hmm. so it's time for me to to get serious about that. But um, you know some of the learnings that I have had and you know I'm, I'm coaching about four or five CEOs at the moment is we all have the sa- they all have the same issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you know the, the role of a CEO is a pretty lonely role. Um number one, they're the only person in the organization who knows everything. And not always can they do any every anything about everything. Um so, you know, that's it's important, but the other thing is is that you know many people have these attributes that they're unaware of. Um and transparency is so important, particularly in the environment we're in now where, you know, if, if things are not moving in the direction that people would like them to, they tend to not be as transparent. And it's funny, I was having a conversation with, I was in New York last week and I was having a conversation with someone last week and we were talking about transparency and it's interesting we have the fine doctor with us today. Because <laughs> I, said, I said, can you imagine what would happen if you went to the doctor and you weren't transparent about you know, the pain you had, do you think the doctor would have any chance of being able to diagnose some you know, treatment to be able to help you feel better? So in an organization, if you're not being transparent and sharing the pain that the organization's having, are you? how could you have any confidence that all those people who could help you would help you if they didn't know? Mm-hmm. And it's again, I think so the other learning is transparency is is really important. And, you know, right now we're going through in life a a period of uncertainty. And a, a friend of mine is Dr. Rebecca Homkus. She was uh, uh, a professor at London Business School, a strategic advisor. And she, she shared with me a, a reflection on, on uncertainty. And she said, it's a series of future events that may or may not occur. That's right. And in most circumstances most of them don't occur but if you think about it right now in business what's happening is we're going through a lot of turbulence Mm -hmm. and you know and if you think about turbulence in the aspect of flying in a plane you know if you're in a plane you have headwinds and tailwinds and and the the pilot can either take advantage of either of those but turbulence is unexpected Mm -hmm. and it's wild and it's rough and it's unstable it's it's unsettled it's chaotic you don't know how long you're going to be in it you don't know how you know how dramatic it's going to be, and so that's what we're going through right now in business is this turbulence and uncertainty, and through all that, we as leaders have to be that steady course. Mm-hmm. We have to be that steady course. we have to you know move ourselves through this and not react to you know that uncertainty that may or may not occur. Have a clear plan, have a good strategy, take care of your people, be transparent you know, move through it we'll get through this and and we'll get to the other side
0: yeah that uncertainty definition kind of reminds me of a quote that i've always heard attributed to abraham lincoln and that's i've been through many terrible things
2: in my life some of which actually happened <laughs> <laughs> i love it that's you yeah, i got to yeah. I got to take, hang on, I need
1: my pen. You know, absolutely. You know, one of our good friends also, Dr. Price Pritchard, talks about ambiguity and uncertainty. And what it made me realize during the pandemic is that uncertainty and ambiguity always exist. It has always existed. The pandemic brought it to a visceral level for us. Yeah. And we didn't pay attention to all of the uncertainty that we face on a day-to-day basis. So one of the things I'm big on is from leadership to culture to navigating uh, uncertainty and ambiguity. How do we begin to teach this to younger kids such that when they join organizations, we don't have as much teaching to do it's more of the commitment to to the to the continued cultivation of because we talk about accountability, and often people aren't taught accountability in their regular lives. It's only when we get to the organization that we continue to hear about accountability accountability accountability. How do we get make that a part of a person's life at a very early age because That's where the real that's what that's where the solutions are. If you catch people early and you teach them what they need to know early, then we don't have to do anything but nurture and cultivate them as they move along in life versus trying to take an adult who's never been accountable, strip them down, deconstruct them, and all of a sudden we're going to teach them to be accountable. How do we do that?
2: That's a great question. And I wish I had the answers, but I have a theory.
1: Mm.
2: Where do kids learn from, their <laughs> parents and those around them? <laughs> so what do you think they think when the person, the, their, their mother, their father, whoever goes home every night and says, I hate my job, my boss is a jerk, I am, you know, uh, do you think they're going to go, I I really want to be part of that. I can't wait to go out and be part of that jerk organization, right? Let, how, how do you get me a ticket to that? So, again, I think, you know, one of the things we need to do is is help create these environments where people come and say, yeah, I really I really love where I work today and the dinner table they're talking about. Yeah, I, you know, we're hold, held accountable. They may not use that word, but uh, I think, you know, kids a reflection of the environment that they, they, they exist in. Um, so how do we fix that environment? Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's such a powerful, Yeah, you know, I, I personally believe there, you know, and you said it earlier, right? Like there's a powerful need to belong, right? And, and folks want to belong to things that are special, that, that keep them safe, that allow them to thrive. Uh, so it sounds like your theory is, is definitely tracking
2: mm-hmm.
1: with
2: uh, yeah.
0: key opportunities well, you know, that we have.
2: When I started thinking about tribes, uh, I, I looked at you know, the tribal behaviors of some indigenous groups, particularly the Australian uh, indigenous population and the Fijian indigenous population. And if you look at some of the attributes, the number one responsibility of a tribal leader is to be a learner and a teacher. And, and let me give you the example. If we were to turn back the clock and go thousands of years back to my homeland, Australia, and be observing a group of Indigenous Australians at a tribal meeting, what would the tribal leader be doing? The tribal leader would be teaching the younger tribe members to throw a boomerang. Why? Because the boomerang was the tool of survival. And if they weren't proficient at using the boomerang, their chances of you know, healthy survival were probably low. So what a lot of leaders don't get right is their number one responsibility is to be a learner and a teacher. That's it. Learning and teaching is the number one responsibility of a tribal leader. And then of course, you know, there's other attributes belonging, you know, what belong we that's one of the biggest desires we have as human beings. And when we talk about belonging, you think about Maslow's hierarchy to self-actualization. Mm-hmm. The first two rungs of that are Basically, do I have what I need to survive and am I safe? The third one is loving or belonging. Mm-hmm. That's where most organizations fall down because they don't, you know, you can't get to self-actualization. If you go, don't go up the pyramid. But they stall there because of this guy.
1: Or girl. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs>
0: wow. It has been just an incredible, incredible, uh, generous sharing of your time, Gary. We cannot possibly thank you enough uh, for taking this time with us. and I I personally could go on with this conversation, I feel like, for hours and hours and love learning from you and appreciate what you're sharing with our audience. Uh, I guess as we kind of try to wrap up, what are the key learnings you'd love to share with our listeners if you had to leave them with just one or two things that they would take home with them and, and put into practice and to play in their
2: lives? Well, as far as leadership's concerned, it's not about you. It's about what you can do to help others. And, you know, my final thing is always life's a gift. Don't send it back unwrapped. Get out there and do some not unwrapping. You know, we have the greatest opportunity, but you know, the thanks, today is to you for allowing me to come here and share some of my scar tissue and some of my Mm -hmm. learning moments because Mm -hmm. what I have is only what I've learned along the way and uh, we need to make the world a better place and we can do that if we if we make you know create organizations where people go to work every day they make a contribution to something bigger than themselves a purpose that's meaningful they learn something new They feel safe and are protected by a compelling set of values. And they go home happy because happy people create happy families, happy families create, happy communities, happy communities create a happy world. And by golly, we need a happy world.
0: Yeah. And, uh, we wanted to, without you making sure that our audience didn't miss this, your book with, you know, if you, if you happen to have it, maybe hold it up so the listeners can see, I know I have read it personally. Four times uh, and get something else out of it each time, helping people win at work. Uh, it's just a, a great, great uh, adage. And isn't it, isn't it amazing, Terry, how, you know, we, Gary gets here and he says the number one responsibility of a tribal leader is a learner and a teacher. And we asked him the important things. And he started with, what he had learned over the years mm-hmm. and then has been teaching us the whole time. Yep. I mean, that's living, you know, that's living what you say. That's Perfect right. consistency. That's right.
1: Yeah. We, and, and we are grateful again for you sharing your time with us because we'll let the audience know you're in San Diego. So it's very still early for you, even though you're an early morning <laughs> person. So we thank you very much for the gifts and the nuggets of gold that you've been able to share with us today.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much. And for our listeners, even though this is live, it's also going to live on our YouTube channel, which you can pick up at unlikely intersections. It's going to live on our website at unlikelyintersection.com. com. And, uh, so we hope you'll reach out and listen. There are so many pearls from Gary in this one that, uh, I myself yeah. am going to go back and listen to it several times because I couldn't take notes furiously enough. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: And if people want to follow me, please follow me on LinkedIn because I'm often posting articles and sharing learning there. So, Gary Ridge, G A R R Y Ridge at LinkedIn, you'll find me there, and um, I'd love you to follow me and uh, help, and so I can continue to share some of my scar tissue with you.
1: Thank you so very much. And where can we find you, Dr. Brown?
2: LinkedIn is a good place for me too,
0: Dr. Philip Brown.
1: You can find me Terry Jackson, a PhD at LinkedIn. And thank you and we know that you learned. We you have learned a great deal from Gary Rich today.